I'd like to thank um, everyone for inviting New South Wales Ambulance here today. I, well, we as Ambulance want to try and give you a different spin, what it's like in the pre-hospital environment. We deal with behaviourally challenged people every day. Why their behaviour challenge for us is not an issue at the time. Our main aim is to, basically we aim to reduce risk of harm to the person and to other people and try and get a timely transport to appropriate treatment setting. Our role isn't to diagnose. Our role is to treat what we see at the time being with allowing the most dignity for the patients that we're dealing with, but in the same way to keep them, ourselves and the population at hand safe. We work exceedingly closely with New South Wales Police Force, as you imagine. Between the two emergency services, we deal with a lot of the patients and we work really well. We have challenges. We're not lucky, like people working in a hospital system, we don't have a lovely buzzer we can press that brings a lot of people down. It is us and the police. So we rely on them, they rely on us, and then we rely on you guys at the other end to try and help these patients. So we are not going to be going back to see them again. It's a huge challenge for all of us. The main types of patients we identify are those that are intoxicated, either using um, alcohol, illicit or prescription drugs. We don't differentiate between them. Those we deem mentally, dis mentally disordered or mentally disturbed under the Mental Health Act. Uh, those people that have compatible in head injuries, either through trauma, assaults, and other people that purely have an organic cause, such as hypoglycemia, uh, postictals, where people can be quite challenging. And I think some of the most challenging behavioural problems for us are the autistic children. Um, who are just downright scared about what's happening. And us taking them away from the environment just makes the situation even worse. Our main role as paramedics is to do things in the most least confining way for the patients. We will do everything to try and communicate with the patients, to talk to them, to calm them down, to de-escalate a situation. If, unfortunately, all that fails and we're talking an extended scene time or we're getting to a point where a patient is becoming more agitated, more violent, more violent towards themselves, at danger to hurting themselves, we may have to resort to other methods of control. Under the Mental Health Act, we have the ability to detain a person against their will under a Section 20. We have the ability to sedate and we also have the ability to restrain. All those three for us are treatments of last resort when there is no other option to us and the potential risk to the patient of leaving them in the condition they are far outweighs us taking away someone's liberty or sedating someone. We always try to consider organic causes first because often it's a simple thing that can de-escalate a patient, giving someone some glucose if they're postictal, uh, 
hypoglycemic, even sometimes post-ictally, people can become hypoglycemic. Giving someone oxygen, often just getting a bit more oxygen to someone's brain will take away a lot of the aggression, a lot of the violence. So trying to get an oxygen mask on, however, for those of you who are nurses, is often one of the most challenging things. So sometimes we do need to restrain. Uh, it's often not deemed as something pretty out in the community, but often in the best interest of the patient, it's what needs to be done. We also have a lot of other challenges that people forget. We then have to transport someone in the back of a moving vehicle in a very confined space with a lot of potential missiles in the back of those vehicles, often for considerable differences. My colleagues who work in the rural areas often are travelling for four hours plus with a behaviourally disturbed patient in the back of a very tiny moving vehicle with often only themselves and if we are lucky enough, maybe a police officer to help us. So we have got challenges. If our de-escalation does fail, we will consider mechanical restraint and we do have a device that was actually developed by a area health service but we adopted and because our mechanical restraint device. We also have sedation and we are currently in a major rollout of an extended form of sedation. We've just adopted the use of Draperidol and we are extending that down to our P1 paramedics, our newly qualified. Prior to uh, July, it was restricted to our advanced life support and our intensive care paramedics. I teach through the training that de-escalation is our first choice. We go through extensive de-escalation techniques. Our paramedics are not taught physical restraint. We rely solely on police for that aspect of our training of restraint. Um, if our attempts at de-escalation fail, we will consider mechanical restraint or we will consider sedation. I'm sure you're all aware of what de-escalation is. <coughs> um, our mechanical restraint device is one I've got a picture of a bit later. Basically we use it for patients where we deem the only way we can effectively transport and treat them with safeness for the patient and for other people is by restraining them within a device. Um, the predominant people we use are for aggressive, combative and violent patients, um, head injured patients, hypoxia that are clinically difficult to manage. They are the patients who, due to the organic nature of their disease, they are very difficult to de-escalate. There is not much about them that we can reason with. Uh, we have specific guidelines and restraint should only be used in the best interest of the patient where you have exhausted all other methods of control or in a situation where it is time critical to get that person to definitive care. Once a person has been placed in the MRD, they cannot be left alone. Um, 
unless an authorised paramedic is with there. Our mechanical restraint device is restricted to the use of our qualified paramedics. As we are a vet training system, we do have paramedics in a three-year <coughs> under well graduate program, so they are not authorised to use the restraint device. Uh, we have a few criteria as far as positioning goes. A patient is never allowed to be restrained prone. And if we are dealing with a pregnant woman, we endeavour to keep them left lateral to try and preserve the best outcome for the baby. It is not an easy device, however, to get on, as you can imagine. You've already got someone that is combative, someone that is struggling, someone that doesn't want to be on. We have two paramedics. It's not often able to be done. We rely, once again, very heavily on the police in the pre-hospital environment. And if it's an inter-hospital transfer, we rely very heavily on the nurses to help us put patients in. Sometimes in an endeavour to get a person in the MRD, we may have to consider sedation to try and eliminate and prevent any harm to themselves and to us and to the police officers involved. Ideally, in addition to the paramedics, it requires another four people and it's not something that gets put on in five, 10 minutes. It can take up to 20 minutes to half an hour. So sometimes we have to consider how long it's going to take to get the person versus how close we are to the local hospital. Naturally, if you are rural, you are going to use it because of the distances traveled. Uh, wherever possible, we do employ police and hospital security as part of the team. And we, well, I have recently trained staff at St Vincent's and Prince of Wales Hospital. They have their own MRDs now to facilitate their transport of their med um, mentally unwell patients for ECT. So it's a big bonus. Our MRD use is, despite what we said, is actually very minimal. <clears throat> for the financial year last year, we applied the MRD 1,627 times which equates to 2.5% of our mental, mentally ill, behaviourally disturbed patients. To us as an organisation, we are exceedingly proud of that. It showed 97.5% of the time our paramedics managed to talk the patient around to coming, which is a huge challenge. And this is a brief picture of what the device actually looks like. It is readily adaptable to hospital beds um, with the addition of a extension strap underneath. Some hospitals have adapted it. Um, with the picture on your right, if you put a sheet over that person, it is quite possible to walk them around an environment and people not even realise they're restrained. So it is a lot more, well, does give a lot of dignity. One of our other options is under the Mental Health Act, the use for Section 20. Section 20 is a paramedic's ability to detain someone against their will and to insist that they go to hospital. Like all aspects of the Mental Health Act, we do have considerable restraints and placed on us and considerable conditions that we do have to meet. 
We are only allowed to use a section 20 if the patient adamantly refuses to come to hospital. And the paramedic feels after doing a mental health assessment that the patient needs assessment and or treatment to determine the cause of them being mentally ill, mentally disturbed, behaviourally challenged, whatever. We are fully aware that the use of the Section 20 removes a person's right to freedom and the decision to use such is not done, uh, is not one we take lightly and it is as such an intervention of last resort for us. One of the issues that is, seems to be a bit confusing for people not familiar, fully familiar with the Mental Health Act, for us, the presence of suicidal ideas, thoughts, intents, does not allow in itself allow us or warrant us to use a section 20. This is quite different to the police section 22 where suicidal ideation thoughts is specifically mentioned. We have to determine that the patient poses a serious physical risk to themselves or to others and we can't be retrospective or forward planning in that risk. It has to be something we observe. It is also inappropriate in cases where a person comes voluntarily to a hospital, even if we have grave concerns for their ongoing safety, if they should abscond once we get to hospital. Once a patient says, I'm happy to come to hospital with you, we cannot use a section 20. What we do need to do is advocate and rely on the staff at the receiving end that this patient is a voluntary patient. We realise that. It was their choice to come to hospital. We as clinicians have serious concerns about this person's safety, but under the Mental Health Act, we are not in any position to detain them. We rely on the ED staff to take over that decision-making based on their ability to use a Section 19. It is not that we want the patient to walk out, We're, our hands are predominantly tied. Um, we will not enact a section 20 solely based on the instructions of personnel from another agency, but we will seriously take into consideration their recommendations based on our mental health assessment, independent mental health assessment that we do. Once again, we do not use section 20s, I do forget to turn this, uh, very often. Um, Financial year last year, we only did 1,468, which is down to 2%. So once again, 98% of the people we dealt with, we managed to convince to come to hospital. We're also quite happy that of the patients we took, which this is the financial year before, the stats haven't come out, of the 2013-2014, of the patients we transported under Section 20 were ultimately admitted. Of the 25% that weren't, a lot of them were deemed to have an organic cause of their behavioural disturbance, and once that organic cause was treated, or drugs and alcohol effectively wore off, the patient was deemed to be perfectly able to be discharged from hospital. Our new move, as I briefly stated earlier, is sedation. We are very conscious of sedating 
patients because of the impact that may have at the other end with a delay to be able to adequately assess a person and work out what is wrong with them. However, to facilitate the person actually getting to that definitive assessment, we sometimes do have to sedate. Up until 30th of June this year, our sedation was midazolam. Um, it was restricted to our advanced life support paramedics and our intensive care paramedics only because of some of the dangers it was perceived to have as far as airway management went. We have, after an extensive investigation over quite a number of years, introduced Draperidol. Um, we have restrictions based on it. It is only currently available for use for patients 16 years and above who are not considered to have a significant head injury. Our dosage is in line with what we believe will be coming into the EDs, 10 milligrams in two mils, a 10 milligram dose stat, halved for those greater than 64. So they will get five milligrams. It is currently in the process of being rolled out. We have, I've trained three lots of our new P1s since the introduction and we have our regional paramedic educators are out there doing their CTP workshops and training a whole heap of others. As I said, we're currently in a transitional phase. Unfortunately, due to the nature of our CTP, it is going to take us 18 months to roll it out. Um, whilst we are an area health service in our own right, our area health service covers the entirety of New South Wales, and there is only me. So it makes it a bit difficult, and I do rely very heavily on our, my colleagues in the rural areas to do a lot of that education for us. So I thought I'd finish off just to outline a few challenges. So I don't use my PowerPoints very much. I'm so used to talking around them. Um, the challenges we face in the pre-hospital environment is not often fully understood by people in hospital situation. When I was a nurse 15 years ago, it was never an issue for us on a day off to hop on the back of an ambulance and do a ride along. That unfortunately is made very difficult these days with the pressures of workers' comp situations, the fact we have a lot of um, student paramedics going, doing the paramedic degree that we have to provide ride along issues for. And I think people forget what it's like being in the back of an ambulance. If you ever have the opportunity, stick your head inside back of one, climb in one and just sit there. They're not as big as what they look. Um, we do have additional risks. We have the fact we don't have the nice, secure environment. An outdoor situation poses the possibility of the access to numerous weapons. Uh, and we're not even talking knives and guns, simple things like rocks, sticks, anything that can be picked up off the ground. Um, trying to behaviourally manage someone in the confines of a moving vehicle when you're in a country environment or even in a city environment. Stop at lights, patient decides they don't want to be there, they hop out the back. Patient decides, I don't really want to be here now, I've woken up a bit, I am going to get out of this car, 
at all costs and you'll suddenly see every door fly open, paramedics and patients scattering everywhere. It's self-preservation. Uh, when you're travelling at distances, going 100 k's down the highway and suddenly have a patient wake up on you and decide, I think I might want to drive this vehicle and try to jump in the front, which has happened. Um, the distances, even for some of our, my metropolitan staff, travelling from the upper reaches of the Blue Mountains to Nepean in peak hour is not a pleasant trip. But think of my, the country people that are travelling for six hours to simply get a patient to a designated mental health facility, then they have to turn around and drive all that way back again. Um, we have a decided unavailability of resources to assist with restraint and sedation. We re heavily require the support of our colleagues from the police force and we're eternally grateful for the help that they give us. But by taking them away to help us do this, we are potentially putting the rest of the population at risk. Um, our need is not to work out why this person is behaving at the way they are. We treat the symptoms rather than the underlying cause. We rely on those people in the EDs to determine the cause and do the definitive treatment. Even the differences between a primary transport and ended hospital transport has its own risks. In a hospital transport, we crew cars based on the information we receive from the receiving hospital. If that information is inaccurate, it makes the situation exceedingly difficult. So in summation, um, I think the biggest difference for out-of-hospital to in-hospital care is we treat symptoms irrespective of the cause. Our concern is not whether the person is on ice, heroin, marijuana. We treat what reversible causes we can pre-hospital, but our aim is to get them to you guys for the definitive care. So we can then get back on the road to treat the next person. We will work in an emergency response environment. We have the additional distractions of our very friendly audience that like to have their two cents worth. Um, family, neighbours and everyone else that's trying to tell us what's going on whilst all we really need to do is treat the patient and get them to hospital. We have a decided problem in um, how we train. As I said, my job as mental health educator is the New South Wales Ambulance. New South Wales Ambulance takes in the entirety of New South Wales. I am lucky that 80% of the paramedics come to me at Roselle. We train them. Um, every paramedic receives mental health training. It is core part of their training now, but we also have to be very mindful they are not mental health clinicians. They have basic understanding to help them identify and determine the difference between mentally ill and mentally disordered and to understand what they can and can't do under the Mental Health Act. But we are not there to diagnose. We rely on you guys to do that. Mental health still accounts for approximately 5% of our cases each year, 60,000 plus. 60,000 plus and we are restraining, sedating 
or sectioning less than 2,000 of those, I think it does show that what we do do in the pre-hospital environment is in the best interest of the patient. That's all I have for you.